All right, everybody. <clears throat> it is time for us to begin class. Actually, before we get begin class, I gotta say one thing. So yesterday, it doesn't really matter the details. The d details don't matter. Um, but in fact, I should give you the details. Um, so I didn't. I I I fell. But here's how I fell. It wasn't really my fault. It was 80% gravity, and the other 20% of it was I was leaning as one would do sometimes like this, right? With my feet completely unsupporting me. It was just, just purely casual, just relaxing. And then I was, I was standing, my feet were on kind of a, a rug that had no sticky stuff on the bottom on a, on a hard floor. And so that, that, that it, 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 it held me there teasingly for a good nine seconds. No, no immediate slippage where you think, well, this is not safe. No, it was just still and then whoop. And so down I went, and it, it was, you should have seen it. I was, I was turning my head, I was talking to some people because I was standing in their kitchen, I was talking to them, and then I was just gone. I just slipped in them. And it was like slow motion and fast forward all at once. I, as I went down, my hand hit the burner, so I burned the first two fingers, I burned my palm, I scratched myself right here, I hurt my butt, I hurt the middle of my back, all of which I didn't really appreciate until the next day when I woke up and suddenly I realized, oh, that's what it means to be old. You don't hurt in the moment. You're in shock in the moment. It's the next day you realize all the places you're hurting. So all that to say, I probably won't be as animated, lest I pull something or twist something or whatever. But if I do start to get animated, y'all, you know, tell me to calm down, lest I hurt myself. All right. Warnings I'll have to give many times more in the future as I continue to get older. All right. That's all that. Second Corinthians. Let's begin at the end of chapter five, where we left off, and we'll finish five and go through six, and hopefully get a little bit into seven. But we'll see. I want to begin at the tail end of verse nineteen. Because uh, I was getting a little ramped up, amped up last week, and I kind of rushed, uh, talk fast as I sometimes do, and burned through this a little too fast. But I want to make sure I hit this point very precisely so as we segue into chapter 6, it all makes sense because there's no chapter breaks, and what he says here carries over. So begin just at the end of chapter 519, where mine says something like, uh, in your Bible, something like Paul writing, has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. All right? Yours might have a slightly different translation or something like that, but that's the gist of it. And as I made the point at the end of last week, and I'll make it again, you've got to be really careful with your pronouns here. He uses a lot of pronouns, sometimes the same pronoun, sometimes the same pronoun in the same sentence, and he's referring to two different groups. And he uses the word us, for example, in this context, to talk about all Christians and also just the apostles among the Christians. So you only realize that by, by um, context, and you learn the context, you learn who is who in what group, based on other pronouns he uses. So when he starts to say you and us, well now you know there's two different groups of people. You are his audience, the Corinthian Christians. Us, as we've seen now for five, almost six chapters, he has been, it's kind of a running theme throughout this book, defending his apostleship, defending his place in the apostles, defending his role as an apostle. And so the us is when it's appropriate to just a small group of people, the apostles and those appointed by Christ to be his ambassadors on earth to go and carry out his message with authority to deliver his message uh, on his behalf. So that's the end of this chapter 5, verse 19. Christ, God in Christ, has committed unto the apostles, though my Bible says the word of reconciliation, not a single word, a message, a ministry, a, a gospel to be preached, that by obeying it leads to your your reconciliation to Christ. It has been given to them to deliver the message. Now, obviously, other Christians who were not apostles carried out the message. Philip went to Samaria, not Philip the apostle, another guy, a Philip, just a person who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, who had power to work miracles, 
but he was not an apostle. And that was evident when he converted the Samaritan village and they needed to call Peter and John till he hands on them to give them the gifts of the Holy Spirit so they could work miracles. Peter, Philip couldn't do that because that's only for an apostle to do. So there was an, a, 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 um, to an extent the, the ministry being given to people, but the authority of that ministry, the, the leadership of the kingdom on earth was solely to the apostles to have. And that's what Jesus was getting at in, in Matthew. Uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm saying that to you, Peter, and to the apostles. You'll be given those keys of the kingdom. Not this guy, Philip, over here or some other evangelist over there. Uh, the apostles were given those keys, that authority keys, authority, uh, to preach that message, to, to um, create the narrative of the gospel message that others would pick up and copy and follow uh, after them. So that segues into verse 20. Now then, as a result of that, us being given that ministry, us the apostles, we, the apostles, are the ambassadors for Christ. You will not find a Bible text that calls you or me Christians, just random Christians, ambassadors. We're not the ambassadors. Now words, words are, as Ronald Reagan once said, words are stupid things. Words can be malleable and change the entire meaning, whatever you want it to mean. Bad can mean good and cool can mean popular. Words can mean anything you want them to mean. So if you, if enough people use the word ambassador and water down the meaning of the word ambassador just to mean a person who talks uh, and a person who represents somebody or represents a, a, um, a movement and speaks on behalf of a movement or speaks in support of a movement, if anybody who speaks in support of a movement is how you define the word ambassador, so be it. That's how you're using the word. Fine. But you need to appreciate that Paul isn't using the word that way. That Paul's usage of the word ambassador carried authority and weight behind it. And he was showing the role that he occupied along with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Next came the other Philip and Thomas too, Matthew and Bartholomew. James the one they called less, Simon and Thaddeus, not Judas because he's dead, but Matthias who came after, and now Paul. Those now 13 men were the authoritative, inspired, command-having, keys-given ambassadors. When they spoke, it was as if Jesus was speaking. When I speak, it is not as if Jesus is speaking. Proof of concept, A, I'm not authoritative, and if you don't agree with me or if I say something wrong, you're not going to be struck dead for disagreeing with me, and I'm not going to be, um, I'm not going to be able to strike you dead or, or condemn you for having a different take on a verse because the answer is somewhere there and I didn't write the thing. But Paul did. We're reading it. When he speaks, it was by authority. And if you disagreed with Paul, and if you challenged Paul, it's to your spiritual detriment. Or Peter and John, if you want to go to them, and Ananias and Sapphira, who challenged their authority by trying to lie to them in Acts chapter uh, 5, and then down they were struck for so challenging. You don't have that authority. I don't have that authority because we're not ambassadors, but they were. So we, the apostles, are those kind of ambassadors for Christ. It is as though God did beseech you, brethren, by us, the apostles, we pray for you, my Bible says, in Christ's stead. What does yours say? On behalf of. On behalf of Christ. Instead of Jesus being here telling you what's what, it is Paul here telling you what's what. Is Paul Jesus? No. Paul didn't die on the cross for you. Paul was not sinless. Certainly Paul was not sinless. Paul didn't die on the cross for you. Paul is not Jesus. Paul is not at the right hand of God. Paul is not the king of the kingdom. But the king of the kingdom is on his throne, which is in heaven. His throne is not on earth. So who's on earth? Not Jesus. He was here for three years, and then he's gone as a ministry. And then he's gone. In his place on earth is Paul and Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They stand where Christ stood on earth with the same authority that Christ had on earth. 
Why do they have that authority? Because he gave them that authority. That's John 14, 15, and 16, among other texts. So we stand here where Christ once stood, and in so standing, we say to you, brethren, be reconciled to God. Now, I get to preach the same message. Here I am quoting it. But it meant something when Paul said it, because when Paul said it, it had never been said before. And me, all I can do is just quote the man. Verse 21. For he, God, has made him, Christ, to be, my Bible says, sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Just to get this out of the way, now the pronoun us shifts not to the apostles, but to all, which is how this whole little section began. He was talking about all of us being saved, all of us having the blessings, and then later the us was um, uh, in scope reduced to the apostles, but now it's the big broad usage of the word us, all brethren. God made Christ to be, again, my Bible says, sin for us. What does your Bible say? Sin. Sin? Everybody's made just... Him to be sin. Made him to be sin. Anybody else? Any different? Here is what, you know, when I used to teach this, I would just say, here's what your, your um, run-of-the-mill denominational... You know, a preacher sweating like a pig up there um, on it, on the stage, moving back and forth. Although I do that too, I move back and forth. Uh, you know, making this big emotional appeal, trying to get the audience to cry. Here's what he'll say: He'll say, "Jesus became a sinner on the cross for you. He became a sinner for you. Jesus was a sinner so that you could go to heaven. Jesus became a sinner." And I've even heard it said, and I don't want to make a straw man, make a false argument, but I have heard it said, people who so greatly misunderstanding what Paul is saying and what other people talk about when they talk about Jesus on the cross, they go from one wrong conclusion that he became a sinner on the cross to another. I've heard it said that for the three days that he was in the grave, he was in hell, not in heaven, even though when he was talking to the thief, where did he say he would be with him at? Paradise. Not hell. Paradise is hell is not a paradise. No. So one wrong conclusion leads you to another wrong conclusion. Well, how can someone think that when the Bible says this? Well, I don't know. Why are they saying the first thing when the Bible doesn't say that either? Nowhere does your Bible say Jesus became a sinner on the cross. He didn't become a sinner on the cross. Jesus became a sin offering on the cross. And the whole point of a sin offering is that it didn't do anything wrong. When the Israelites sinned, the Israelites sinned. He defied God. He was not honorable to his parents. He did not keep the Sabbath. He ate pork when he shouldn't have had. Whatever the sin was, he did wrong. You know, he needs to make it right. What does he do? Does he go and die for his sin? No, because that's not what the law said. He can't die for himself. That's just a sinner dying for a sinner. That doesn't do anything. You have to find something innocent to die for the sinner. So you go to your flock. You get your very best lamb, the one that is innocent, that is spotless, that is pure, the very best that you have, a sacrificial lamb. It's not the lamb you're going to kill anyway because it's got a gimpy leg. It's a lamb that's your very best that you would want to take care of and not let anything bad happen to. You go, you go cut its throat, drain its blood, and offer it on the bronze altar. And you sacrifice that thing so you get nothing out of it. You don't get to eat its food. You don't get to have a party and celebrate like it's on a spittle or something. No, you're completely giving that thing up. Why? It didn't do anything wrong. Why do I have to kill it? Because I did something wrong and a price must be paid. And when I offer that sacrifice, when I put that lamb on the altar, it burns and the smoke goes up. And to God, it is a, what's the Bible always call it? Sweet a sweet savor. Does God accept or reject that offering? He accepts it. Because when you offer a sin offering, God accepts the sin offering. So I don't know how 
somebody back in the day got this all backwards and managed to convince a bunch of people that Jesus became a sinner on the cross and that God turned his back on Jesus because he was a sinner on the cross when the Bible never, ever says that because that would imply that God, on the most important sin offering in history, the one that he offered, that he put his son on the altar of Calvary and then as he went up, the, the metaphorical scent of his death went up, that God didn't like that. Of all the pure and innocent and sinless who knew no sin, your text says, of all those offerings that have ever been, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of Jesus, was the most sinless, the most perfect sin offering. So how do you square it with me? How do you try to make sense to me that that was the one sin offering that God didn't accept, that God wasn't happy with, that God turned his face away from, when all throughout Old Testament history, he was staring with delight at every other sin offering that was offered. And he stared with delight, not because he was happy it was happening, but because he was satisfied with the offering at this sacrifice too. I know that because I read Isaiah 53, where it says the same thing. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus to be sin. How do you square that? If he didn't become a sinner, then how did Jesus become sin? How do I know that the phrase is used to mean sin offering? Is there some other time in the Bible where God or the Holy Spirit uses the word sin to mean a sin offering? And indeed there is. Look at Hosea 4 verse 8. Everybody, put your little finger or thumb or ribbon in 2 Corinthians. And look at Hosea 4 verse 8. Whoever gets there first, by all means. These wicked people who don't offer their sacrifices to God. Instead, they feed on the sin of my people. How do you eat sin? You can't. But you can eat and take advantage of and misappropriate and misuse the sin offerings of the people. Which is what Hosea and God, inspiring him, condemned. To eat sin, to be sin, to offer sin. An offering is the idea, the usage there. God offered his only begotten son, John 3, 16. And so offering him, he made him a lamb, as John the baptizer called him, as his ministry began, a lamb on an altar, not of wood and stone and covered in gold inside the walls of Jerusalem, but an altar of Calvary's cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. That's the book of Hebrews. You're that on Sunday mornings. You'll get there shortly. It's toward the end of the chapter, or the end of the book, but offered him outside the gates of Jerusalem on the altar of Calvary, an offering that God designed, an offering that God desired, because it was the one and only offering that could take away your sins, which no animal sacrifice was able to do. So, again, God made Jesus to be the sin offering for you. A sin offering, a person who himself knew no sin, was not a sinner. Never became a sinner, not for one moment. To what end? so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
We who had sinned needed a sin offering, not a lamb, because we are we aren't goats. We're metaphorical goats, not literal goats. We a, a lamb didn't sin. I sinned, so the offering has to be something equivalent to me. Before I sinned, I was a perfect person, sinless, and then I sinned, and so I became an imperfect person. So what does need to be offered to be equal, to be just, to be righteous? I would need an offering of equivalent stature. I would need to offer a sinless person. I can't offer me. I'm not sinless anymore. can't offer you. You've also sinned. I can't offer a child, though a child is sinless. A child's not a sinless man. A sinless adult sinned. I was an adult and I first sinned. I went from a sinless adult to a sinning adult. So I can't offer me. I can't offer you. I can't offer a child. What's the only equal offering? Find me a sinless man. Find me a person who could be tempted and refuse to, to sin. Find me a person who's been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. There's only one. Jesus. Hebrews 4. He was offered on our place so that we, taking his place, can be made righteous. Verse chapter 1 of chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Sorry. There's no chapter break. Okay? The righteousness of God in him is how Paul uses or uses the idea of salvation in a phrase. You, one thing about Paul, you have to watch, and this is where a lot of people get in trouble, is Paul often uses a lot of different words and phrases to describe the same idea. He rarely ever describes the same thing the same way twice. His vocabulary is too big for that. So if he wants to talk about salvation, I could list you 30 different ways he describes it, but it's all the same thing. He just got through saying, Christ allowed through his sacrifice you to be made the righteousness of God in him. In a word, saved. Same idea, chapter 6, verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. What is the grace of God in this context? Being made the righteousness of God in him. Same phrase, or different phrase, same idea, same context. Still this us, you thing, apostles to you. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We beg you to be reconciled to God. We then, the apostles... The guys whose authority you don't respect right now, Corinthians. We then, as workers together with him, even though the phrase with him was not in the original Greek, it was there by the translators to make it flow, but rightly so, because it makes it flow better. We standing there in Christ's stead, being the workers together with Christ, we beseech you, as he said before, that you don't take the salvation message we give you, that you don't take the ministry of reconciliation, that you don't take the grace of God you're being offered and treat it like it's no big deal. Treat it like it's a thing that could be thrown away. Treat it like a thing that you would allow someone else to come and corrupt and ruin and hand back to you and you treasure it. No, it's not worth treasuring if it's been corrupted. It should be discarded. Get the genuine article. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. How would it be received in vain? If you take the message and you let someone else manipulate you into believing something else. If someone takes that message and they twist it or they change just enough of the details so that it doesn't lead you to Christ, but leads them to them. In this case... You had Jewish Christians, so-called Judaizers, pushing Judaism on the church, telling the brethren, if you want Gentile brethren, if you want to become a Christian, you got you got to keep circumcision, in particular. So, talking to Jewish men, sorry, talking to Gentile men, telling them you must hold to the covenant of circumcision because otherwise you can't be Abraham's seed line if you're not circumcised, because that was the tell for you to be part of Abraham's covenant, which will lead to Paul writing in Galatians. That ain't how it works, but we're going to study Galatians later. So here, these guys are teaching, and probably, no, these guys are teaching, you have to maintain circumcision, you have to keep this covenant, and probably they were adding on to that things like, hey, you got to keep this feast day here, and you got to keep the Sabbath there. Whatever they could push back in of the Jewish covenant into Christianity, 
they were they were doing and so in so doing they were treating the gospel as it was an incomplete thing an imperfect thing which is damnable again that's Galatians but look at chapter uh, 6 verse 2 for he has said quote I have heard thee in a time appointed in the day of salvation have I my Bible says succored thee uh, held you close and comforted you is the meaning of the word Behold, now it is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's a paraphrase, semi-quote from Isaiah 49, verse 8. Isaiah was talking about it as a prophetic thing, looking ahead to this era. The Bible calls it a day, but it's not 24 hours. It's an era of time. The day of salvation has been ongoing 2,000 plus years. From the moment Jesus ascended, from the moment Jesus sat, from the moment that disciples started being baptized and becoming Christians added to the kingdom, from then on has been the day of salvation. When anybody can be told, today you can be saved. Today is your day of salvation. That had nothing to... Well, I don't want to say nothing. That is not... Uh, a, you being a Jew or holding Jewish te uh, tenets is not a prerequisite to you entering into that era of salvation. You can be completely Gentile. You can never visit Jerusalem. You can never be circumcised. You can never wear the funny hat on your head. You can never eat pork a day in your life. And you can still be just as saved as this guy over here who's got the, the long sideburns in the hat and he doesn't ever do anything on Saturday or anything else. He does all those things. He keeps all those things even though he doesn't have to because his conscience compels him to. Romans 14. So fine. But you can't tell him he has to. And these two brethren are just as much brethren as any other brethren. Because today is the day of salvation for everybody. Today is the day when you being grabbed by God, held close to God, and, and, and taken care of and comforted by God is available to all. Verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. We're going to err, but occasionally we're going to veer wildly off course. But if we repent and turn back to God, our sins are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Once more, 1 John 1, 7. This is what Paul means when he talks about giving no offense. Yours might say stumbling block or no occasion to stumble, no opportunity where you might slip up. The, the Judaizers were trying to pass off their message as we're finishing the story. You, Paul's giving you half the story, grace and salvation and the cross and all that good stuff. The rest of it is circumcision and Sabbath day maintaining, all that stuff. That's just the rest of it. You've got to keep that. And they're watering down and making a vain thing that making a, an incomplete thing the all-sufficiency of the cross. And in so doing, they were causing Gentiles to stumble over whether or not they should and have to keep some of these Jewish tenets. You don't need that. You're going to have your own opportunities to stumble. And thanks be to God that your opportunities to stumble, when you take them, you have the chance to get up again. But when you do stumble, it's not going to be because Paul taught you wrong. And in this case, if they stumble, it will be because the Judaizers did teach them wrong. The ministry of Paul is not to be blamed if they stumble. The ministry of the Judaizers will be to blamed. Four. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. And now he starts with an in this, in that, in this, in that. But we'll get to that in just a second. We are ourselves approved by God to deliver to you this ministry. Now... That's just a nice little summary of who he is and what he does. To what extent does Paul preach his message? Because the Judaizers are not content to say, hey, by the way, you should also be circumcised. They are also saying, hey, also, by the way, that Paul guy, don't listen to him. 
Because he's not telling you the truth. He's telling you things that aren't biblical, that aren't accurate, that are against Moses. All the things the Jews are saying about Jesus, they're saying about Paul. So they were running him down and undermining his authority. They were trying, they were trying to drive a wedge between the Corinthians and Paul. And so as much as he hates having to talk about himself, as much as he loathes having to say all the things he's gone through because he doesn't want the attention on him, he wants it on the cross, here Paul begins a sermon are you guys ready for this? Because I might preach this one of these days. It has 37 points. A 37-point sermon about what he has endured. What the bad and the good that comes out of it. All of that for preaching the gospel. The very thing that's being attacked and accused and, and challenged right now. Paul says, let me tell you what my ministry looks like. We have been approved by God as ministers of God in, number one, in much patience. The word means cheerful or hopeful endurance someone who handles a trial without breaking down or giving up because he knows it'll be worth it in the end so what things require patience number two in my bible says afflictions pressures the hardships cast on you from those who oppose you when your enemies will not live and let live but instead will work to make your life miserable the afflicted need patience number three in necessities to be in urgent need to be at rock bottom without a rope means you need a rope to be at the end of your rope means you need a hand we've all been in situations like that god's people find ourselves in situations like that that doesn't mean you're it doesn't mean you aren't faithful it doesn't mean god's not faithful it means the devil's very active I'll, no i will not say this on sunday because i changed my entire sermon but i was gonna i was gonna make this point so in three years when i actually do preach the sermon i was going to preach on sunday uh, i'll say it then but you'll have forgotten by now uh, or by then. Uh, the point I was going to make, I'll cut all that out, uh, is this. Um, what people sometimes do, uh, and how people sometimes view it when they, when they talk about the devil as, as your enemy, um, lost people will, will sometimes think the devil's out to get them. Lost people will use the, the, the devil made me do it defense. Lost people will talk as if the devil is constantly hounding them and haunting them. Listen, the devil doesn't even know who you are if you're lost. You're just one of a million on his team. You're, you're one of, not even his team, you're one of billions that are just in his slave unit. He doesn't even know your name. But if you're a Christian, he knows your name. He was there when you were baptized. He saw you leave his slave unit to join the opposition. He knows your name. Remember when, when these uh, false teachers tried to cast out uh, a person who was possessed by demons and... Um, they, I'm, I don't have. I, this is why you shouldn't. That's why you should use your notes. But I have it in, the head, in my head somewhere. And the, the demon said, "The dev, uh, Jesus I know, uh, Peter I know, but who are you? Remember that? My, yeah. What's that at? Somewhere in Acts, right? You guys who know the Bible better than I do, yell it up. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, I don't have the quote exactly right, probably, but it, it, it's this guy who says, uh, "Jesus I know." Is it Peter I know? He says after that. But, who, but who, who the devil are you, he says. Because he doesn't know who you are. The devil doesn't know you. The devils don't know you if you're already on their team. You're just faceless names, nameless faces. Yeah, that's better. Nameless faces in the horde of lost people. But the moment you become a Christian, now you're on his radar. Now you're on his list. Now you're targeted. Do you think you're going to have hard times? Of course you're going to have hard, hard times. Necessarily you're going to have hard times. 
the, the, the very, very, very old and good at his job enemy of all that is righteous is coming after you. Yeah, you're going to have hard times. That's not a reflection of God leaving you. It's a, it's a reflection of the devil coming after you. What you do with that is up to you. Turn to God or not. Certainly you know what the devil wants. Number four, in distresses, into the verse. It's to be in a narrow room is what the literal Greek meaning of the word is, but it's, it's obviously a metaphor. When you're trapped, when you're boxed in, when you're in a tight spot, you have nowhere to turn, nowhere to run, you see no one around you who can help, what do you do? That's when you need a minister to help the people who are in those spots. When I say minister, I don't just mean the guy who preaches on Sunday. I mean a servant, a helper, a doer on behalf of. Number five, six verse five. In stripes, physical wounds. The kind administered, for example, by a Roman soldier, brandishing a cat of nine tails. Sometimes being faithful spiritually means suffering physically, but your reward is not physical, so what does it matter? And imprisonments. If they don't beat you and release you, they may imprison you and try to wear you down. Would you rather have a short moment of suffering, a, a few months, a few years, perhaps even a short life of suffering in prison, or would you rather renounce Christ, get out of jail, and live 30 years peacefully? What's 30 years? Well, for, for some, 30 years is a lot. What's 30 years in the skew of eternity? Nothing. So which would you rather have? A whipping in jail? A whipping in jail time? Or you can have freedom for the rest of your life? Okay, but then what? Then your life is out. And then the, there's, the rest, there's no rest of. It's just forevermore, depending on what you choose. Imprisonments, I'll take that. In tumults, my Bible says, chaos, where the gospel goes, the apple cart gets overturned. Christ described it as not bringing peace but a sword. Not bringing stability in the home but instability. Sometimes having to, to set at odds a father with his son, a mother with her daughter, a husband with his wife. Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Christ came first and often, uh, Christ coming first and often leads to chaos in a very stable evil world. Stable in its evilness. In labors. Next one, number eight, if you're keeping score. Literally, to toil until you hurt. Have you ever worked outside so long? A job that starts out easy. Just, you're hauling wood. My childhood. Someone else, someone gets the fun job of cutting the wood, which I learned later is not that fun. But then now you have to pick up the wood and you have to haul it over to the truck. And he won't move the truck as you whittle it down. The truck stays there. Well, you can easily back it up. So it's just, no, because if it looks like you're having fun, if it looks like it's easy, that cannot be. Sorry, I need therapy. So you go over here and you get it. You walk all the way there and you put it there. First one, easy. The 75th one, I don't care if you're 12. I don't care if you're 16 and you're in shape. It hurts. In, to, in, uh, in labors to toil until it hurts. There is no room for half measures in Christianity. To serve Christ means you give them your all. You labor till it hurts. But in the end you'll be rewarded. The Jews have a rest day. You also have a rest day. It is not Sunday. Sunday is your day of work. The rest day is heaven. Hebrews chapter 4. In watchings, a word which means sleeplessness. The watch, the city watch, the watchman who's on the wall keeping eyes out, watching peeled, eyes peeled on the night, in the night sky. Sleeplessness. Have you ever been so committed to a task you kept working through the night to get it done? The servant of Christ has to have that mentality. That level of dedication Along the same line, number 10, in fastings. Have you ever been so committed to a task, you skipped lunch, you skipped dinner, you skipped dessert just to get it done? A servant of Christ has to have that mentality, that level of dedication, 
It's hard work. You work until you're done or you work until Jesus comes. Verse 6, number 11. By pureness, God makes us pure. He cleanses our sins. He removes every blot on our record. The advantage of that, past tense, is everything I have done is gone. The advantage of that, future tense, is I start over. So now I can take a step in pureness. I can take another step in pureness. I'll take a wrong step. Now I'm not pure anymore. But then I get back into life, verse 12 and 7, and I'm washed clean again. Now I'm pure again. Now I can take another step in pureness. Every step I take in the light is a step of purity. He's constantly washing me of my sins. 1 John 1, 7. As long as I'm in the light, I live by pureness, by knowledge. God makes us wise. He fills our minds with what we need to know in order to grow in grace and resist the devil. He doesn't beam the knowledge into your brain. You've got to, you've got to open his book. You got to read what it says. You got to study your Bibles, but in so soaking in the inspired word, you find the recipe for your salvation and faithfulness. By number 13, long suffering. God helps us through hard times. He lengthens our rope. He stretches out his arm and hand to help us along the way, pull us out of the ditches, push us along when we're starting to stumble, and keeps us going, keeps us hanging on, keeps us keeping on. Verse 15, by the Holy Spirit, God's word, God's salvation, God's purifying you so that you could be a temple of God. God's Holy Spirit helps you to do all the previous things. The word is what you know and gives you the motivation to press on, gives you the truth and the hope that you have. Otherwise, how would you know? If you're a Christian, well, that doesn't even work because you can't be a Christian without the word of God. The word of God is the seed that's implanted in your heart, Luke 8, 11. So in some crazy hypothetical, you become a Christian and then immediately you forget everything about the Word. Okay, in that crazy hypothetical scenario, forget everything you've ever learned about God, Christ, the Holy Spirit. Forget everything you've ever learned about salvation, the church, or redemption. Now somebody tell me something about the Holy Spirit. Somebody tell me something about redemption. Tell me something about the church. You don't know squat. All you know is what God has told you. This is what this is for. And the Spirit inspired this so you can know. By love unfeigned. No matter how bleak, do you have a hand up? No. no matter how bleak the moment, no matter how dark the season, you are not alone. God is with you. God's church is beside you. You are loved. And God's love is pure, sincere, and unfeigned. That means not hypocritical. Number 17, verse 7. By the word of truth, Paul, this is his ministry he's talking about, does not preach his opinion or anyone else's opinion. He doesn't preach Moses. He preaches Jesus. He preaches God's word. By the power of God, he isn't a pretender when it comes to his authority. It is confirmed by the powerful miracles which he can do and has done. Ask Elemas, whom he struck blind, if you doubt his authority. Number 19, by the armor of righteousness, he refuses to fight a physical battle against his enemies. How many times was Paul beaten up, beaten down, in prison, threatened with death, eventually, eventually his head chopped off at the end of his life? How many times did that happen? Not one time, once, do you find a single record of Paul taking a swing at somebody. Of Paul exercising his civic right to defend himself. His fight is spiritual. Those people attacking him are not his enemies. The devil's his enemy. So he'll challenge the devil the way you fight the devil, with ideas, God's ideas. Number 8, verse 8, I mean, verse 8, number 20. By, here's a series of yin and yangs, opposites. By honor, loved ones hold him up. 
By dishonor, while enemies try to tear him down. Either way, I'm going to keep preaching. By evil report, if enemies lie about me, I'll keep preaching. By good report, when my friends who love me set the record straight on my behalf, I keep preaching. As deceivers, that's what the enemies said of him. They say he's a liar. You say that, fine. I'm going to keep preaching the message. And yet, true, because he preaches it long enough, the truth prevails. You prove himself. He proves himself. The word proves himself true. Verse 9, number 26. As unknown, you can translate this as ignored. Your Bible might even say that. If you completely disregard Paul, put him out of your heart and mind. Don't want anything to do with him. He's still going to preach his heart out somewhere. He's still going to preach the message somewhere. If you write him off and ignore him, fine. And yet well known, my said. Others will pay close attention. And in so doing, motivate him to keep going, to keep preaching, to keep doing. As dying Enemies have tried, as I just said, tried to kill him repeatedly and shamelessly. Verse 20, or number 29, and behold, we live. The providence of God, the grace of God, through all of that, Paul has endured. He's not going to live forever. He's going to lose his head. And as he does, he's going to say, well, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I'm going to lose my head and I'm going to get a crown. Where's that crown going to go? You don't have a head. God will put one back on me. When I get up one day, as chastened, falling short of killing him, the Romans, the Romans, among every other kind of, of um, national group who loved to torture their enemies, and just about all of them in some point in history did, the Romans made it a science. They made it an art of knowing just how close to, to uh, torture you without killing you. Because you're no fun to them if you're dead. They can't torture you. They can't hurt you if you're dead. But as long as you still draw breath, they can keep hurting you. And they knew what, right where that line was. So that's, in a word, to be chastened. To be a parent to a child, spanked. A Roman to a, to a criminal, beaten to within an inch of your life. And then they take another half inch after that. And not killed. You can scourge me. You can scold me. You can scoff at me. But you cannot snuff out his life until God's ready for him to go. Verse 10, number 32, as, I told you, it's 37 of these, as sorrowful with all the hardships previously mentioned. You think Paul shed tears? Yes, he's a human being. He didn't, he didn't, as much as you could say, well, you have to have perspective. You have to have everything Paul talks about in Philippians. I mean, isn't Paul the guy who said, uh, be anxious for nothing in Philippians? He is. He's also the guy who will say to these very people, that's my five minutes, to these very people, I am constantly dealing with the anxiety of being the missionary for the church. I'm constantly dealing with the cares of the brethren. The same word there, he says he has. He said about the brethren, don't you have? That's not him saying, you can have it, but I can't. Or I, I can have it, but you can't. That's him acknowledging that he struggles with this too. You cannot help to be anxious. You help whether or not you let it fester and you stew over it and you let it draw you away from your relationship with Christ. That's what Paul says, avoid. Don't let your cares lead you away from Christ. Trust in Christ. Paul says, I've got cares. Listen, your own sinless master said he had cares. John chapter 12, before he goes to the cross. He says, now is my heart, same thing, now is my heart troubled. And what shall I say to my father? Save me from this hour, for this cause I came to this hour. And then two chapters later, he'll use the same word. Now is my heart troubled? He'll say to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. That's not a hypocrite. That's a person saying, here's what you're dealing with. Here's what you need to avoid. Here's what you work on. Here's what you work through. Jesus worked through it. 
Like going to the garden, spilling it out, and trusting in the will of God. So, sorrowful. Yeah, it's okay to cry. That's not an acknowledgement that it's worthless or that it was bad or that you wish it hadn't happened. That's just a reaction to pain. Yet always rejoicing. How are you sorrowful and always rejoicing? Because sorrow is my physical response to all the bad things I just mentioned. Rejoicing is my spiritual response to it. It's my attitude in spite of it. His cry never lasted long because he always found, he always looked for, and found a reason to rejoice. Number 34. As poor, the servant of Christ, you might find yourself in financial misfortune. That's the meaning of the word here. He doesn't mean poor in spirit or anything like that. He means lacking funds to live. So you rely on your brethren. Poor, yet making many rich. What's Paul's perspective? I don't have any money. That's fine. I'll, I'll deal with it because my ministry is about helping other people find spiritual riches. So if I have to help you find spiritual riches at the expense of my worldly riches, so be it. That's more important. Number 36. As having nothing. Again, not well off. Why does he repeat himself then? Because he's building the contrast in the next phrase. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Poor, but making you rich. Having nothing, but still about me, yet possessing all things. Paul had more than he could imagine. He had more than he could count. He had more than he deserved. More what? Blessings. He could name them one by one. Never run out of ways to describe them. And if you take all that away, all 37 of those things, you take it all away, what are you left with? You're left with a man who sinned and who was saved. And if that's all he has, he still has that. And you can never take that away from him. But you don't take that, you don't take that away. So he gets to possess all things. That's the list. On reflection, almost all of those are things that you can say about yourself. And, or, and make application about all of them. It's not just Paul. Paul's... Paul would be the first one to tell you he's not anything special. I mean, I would say he's very special. He's an amazing person. But Paul would say he's not. He's just a guy chosen to do this. And he'll give his life for it. All that said, I don't want to continue. we got two minutes. Don't tell your parents. I'll let you out early. <laughs> Any comments or questions from anybody? I got a little animated and pulled a hip. But that's your fault for not stopping me while I was up here 